Good morning again. My name is Elliot, um, and I'm the pastor here. And if you are just joining us, we have been in the book of Acts uh, this fall for our sermon series. What you need to know about the book of Acts is that it is a sequel. It's part two of a two-part story. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a historian. Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And here's what Luke sets out to do in his two-part story. He says at the beginning of his first part, the, the gospel according to Luke, he says, I'm writing to you, reader, so that you would know with certainty the things that have been told to you about Jesus. So the goal of Luke's writing is that people would be able to read it and go, Jesus really was who he says he was. Jesus really is who he says he is. And so he sets off by telling the story of the coming of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And then that story of Jesus is meant to continue in the world. And so he continues that story in the book of Acts. The problem in that, uh, that trajectory is that, okay, he's gonna keep telling us the story of Jesus. Eight verses into the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to be with the Father. And so the story of Jesus is meant to continue in the world, but Jesus leaves and he sends his Holy Spirit in chapter two to say, hey, church, hey, people of God, you are to continue the mission of Jesus in the world. You are to be the hands and feet in Jesus in the world. You are to continue what I came into the world to do, which is to redeem what's broken, to heal what's wounded, and to bring shalom with you. And so we follow the story of the church in the book of Acts, but the story of the church in the book of Acts is merely a continuation of the story of Jesus that began in the book of Luke. So that's what we're doing. We've looked at this for the last five or so weeks. Um, and what we looked at last week was this brief description by Luke at the end of chapter four, where he kind of describes the radical generosity of the early church in Jerusalem. They were giving everything they could to the poor. They were taking care of each other. No one fell into any need that that need wasn't met by the church community. And then we hear of this guy named Barnabas, who we're told at the end of chapter four, sells off a piece of property and he gives all the profit to the church to be distributed to the poor and the needy and the needs of the community. That's how chapter four closes. And the next story that we're gonna look at today comes on the heels of that. The next story is meant to be a follow-up to, did you hear about this glorious Barnabas? Did you hear about this glorious church, how radically generous they were? And then the next story is meant to crush all of our utopian hopes that it was always as beautiful and butterflies and rainbowy as is described in chapter four, because it's about to get difficult. For the first time since Judas, in the, in the you know, original 12 of Jesus, the people of God are gonna experience some serious internal conflict in chapter five. It gets messy, it gets hard. I gotta tell you, perhaps no other story in the book of Acts raises more questions than this story at the beginning of chapter five. It's a difficult passage to read. It's confusing, especially on the first read. Like, what is, what is God doing? Why did he let this happen? Why did he act this way? What's going on? It's so challenging because as soon as you read it, as soon as we read it together, you're gonna, you're gonna wanna raise your hand and go, whoa, 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 I got a bunch of questions. And I would just say, I'm not gonna answer all those questions today, but it's normal to have questions about the Bible and stories that we don't understand. It's a difficult story. In fact, it's so difficult. I need you to know this little factoid. Uh, I have this Bible program, this Bible software on my computer called Logos because I'm a professional Christian. And this Bible program, Logos, if I type in a passage that I'm preaching on, it will pull up all the resources of the software that, that uh, relate to that passage. So all the commentaries, it's got like 30 commentary sets and the maps and the cross-references and the original languages and all the things that I could pull up to learn about this passage. One of the things that it also pulls up every time I type in a passage is, 
any sermon of a, of a famous dead preacher that I have the kind of transcribed sermons of. So all the way back to like the fourth century, like I've got John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher and St. Augustine and, and I've got Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield and all these people who have pre- preached their whole lives. So if they preached a sermon on a passage that I'm preaching on, I can read their, their transcribed sermons. I typed in this passage this week, zero sermons came up which means no one wanted to preach on this. Uh, Now I'm not saying I know why they did it. I'm also not saying they never preached on it. I just don't have record of it. Here's what I'm telling you. uh, Here's why I say that today. This is the first sermon ever preached on this passage. I'm kidding. (laughs) But when when they transcribe my sermons and put it into Logos, when you get Logos someday and you type this in, you'll have one sermon from Elliot Cherry on this passage. Kidding. (laughs) Mine will not be transcribed, I promise, because I say things like that. but here we go. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. I'm just warning you, there's going to be a lot of exit ramps to get off in your mind, and it's okay to get off on them. Just hop back on the interstate together with us, because there really is, as much confusion maybe is on the surface, there is a lot of beauty and a lot of depth um, here that could be revealed to us. So I want to stick with it together. So Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. You ready? It's coming off the heels of Barnabas selling everything, giving it to the church. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Quite the story, quite startling, seemingly a little off with this grace that we've been talking about that reigned in the early church, the grace of the gospel spreading bringing people into the family, what happened to that? Like, was, what, what is, what's going on? And I would just encourage us that as we lean in and, and work through this passage, there actually is in this passage a re-cementing of the grace that we have seen in the book of Acts so far. This is not a one-off that God is acting out of character. There's actually the Lord fighting for something in his church that is beautiful uh, and grace-filled. So brief recap. Let me just give kind of a lay of the land real quick after the first read-through. So again, chapter four ends. We hear about this man named Barnabas who sells a piece of property and then brings 100% of the proceeds and lays it at the apostles' feet to be given to the poor and the needy among them. 
Ananias and Sapphira are a part of this community. They see what's happening to Barnabas and they go, we want to sell a piece of property. Hey, Peter, hey, church apostles, hey, we're going to go sell off a piece of property ourselves and we're going to bring you 100% of the proceeds too. Now, something happened in their hearts. We're not given that all the details, but something happens in their hearts where between the time that they promise to sell and give 100% of the profits and then the time they come to drop it at the disciples and the apostles' feet, they change their minds. When they sell their property, let's say they sold their property for $100,000, they sell their property for $100,000, but when they come and drop it at the apostles' feet, it's only $50,000, but they don't tell anybody about the difference. They don't tell anybody about the delta. They just still present themselves as those that are giving away 100% of the profits. Yeah, we sold this property. We got 50K for it. Here is all that we made on the property. Well, somehow, through the Holy Spirit, through some other means, Peter knows that they're lying. He knows that what they've given is different than what they made. He knows that what they originally promised, they have now lied. You're not giving what you said you were gonna give. And so when Peter calls out Ananias about this deed and he exposes him, Ananias drops dead. And then a few hours later, his wife Sapphira comes running in and she, it's like when they separate the witnesses, you know, it's like, all right, we're gonna tell them that it was the front right tire, you know? Like she comes in and she thinks like, oh, we're still, we've still got our coup going. Like we still got, we still got the wool pulled over their eyes. So they come in and or she comes in, she has no idea what's happened to her husband. And Peter says, hey, Sapphira, did you sell the property for X amount? And she goes, that's exactly the amount we sold it for. You're right. And then Peter has to say, yeah, actually, I know you're lying and your husband got caught too and the feet of those who carried your husband out, that little crew of young men who apparently just carry bodies out very quickly, uh, they're, coming, they're at the door, they're coming right back in to carry you and she drops dead. That's the story. That's the story in Acts chapter five. And what's important to note as we begin to peel back the layers on this onion, it's very important for us to know context, to know like time and history and place and space. It's very important for us to know. This church in Jerusalem is not some baby church plant. The church in Jerusalem is the baby church. The church in Jerusalem is not an attempt to try to reach some people in a different neighborhood, which is what church plants do. But we've got a bunch of other churches that will be just fine if that one doesn't make it. This is the only church in the world. This is the baby church. This is the only gathering of Christians in the world. And much like a baby being brought home from a hospital for the first time, which we will do for a fifth time this December, you know, no, no tears. Do not woo at that. Okay, thank you. Not receiving woos yet. But we, we know when we bring that baby home, here's what they tell you. Like, don't, don't let anybody breathe on that baby. Don't like the... Don't let an infection in, don't let a virus in, don't let germs in. You've got to protect this baby because the baby's immune system is fragile. This baby's immune system can't handle what other people's immune systems can handle. You have to protect this baby because infection could get into their blood, blood, blood system, their bloodstream, and their body can't handle it. It's the same here with the baby church. This church in its baby form is meant to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Galilee to the ends of the earth, which is why we're here, by the way, because they made it to the ends of the earth. But if it doesn't make it out of Jerusalem without something infecting the blood, if it doesn't make it out of Jerusalem, then this whole thing could have gone set on a trajectory that would topple the whole thing. It must be protected. There's too much at stake. There's a DNA being formed here. There's a culture being created here. There's pillars and foundations of what the church will be and must be for ages to come at this level. 
So this baby church has to have itself protected. If an infection gets in, it could kill the whole thing. In fact, it's so early in the church's existence, it's in such its baby stage, that Luke actually is letting the reader know just how newbornish it is. He does it at the grammar level. Luke, in verse 11, calls this group of people in Jerusalem the church, which is the first time he's used that word in the whole book of Acts. It's the first time any group of people gathering for worship and mercy and service and to learn with each other, it's the first time any group of people in the history of the world has been called the church. Luke uses it right here in Acts chapter five and verse 11. First time, ecclesia, it's the first time that word is used in the New Testament. And so what Luke is saying to you at the grammar level is, this is the first church. We've got things here that are fragile. We've got immune systems that aren't built out yet. If things get in here, we might not make it out of Jerusalem. He's letting you know just how newbornish it is, which is partially why there is an intensity to this story that maybe seems alarming. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot that must be protected against. There are things and elements in this story that the Lord will not allow to be a part of his church. So what is he trying to root out? What is the Lord going after to root out in his baby church? Well, the key to understanding the whole passage takes place in the interaction between Peter and Ananias. We have to go back to this verse where Peter's talking to Ananias because he frames the issue. Peter frames the problem to Ananias in a really helpful way, but it's easy to miss given all the other chaotic elements of the story. But it is not what you think it is. Verse four, look at it again. This is when Peter's talking with Ananias, says this. Peter's talking to him and he says, while it, that's the land, while your land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You own the land. Then, and after it was sold, was it, that's the profit, not at your disposal. You could do whatever you wanted to do with the money. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Here's what Peter just said to him. Look, dude, no one made you sell your land. It is totally fine to own property. In fact, we need people to own property because we're meeting in houses now. We need house churches. It's great that you own property. No one made you sell the property. It was your idea to sell your own property. And no one made you, Ananias, by the way, promise to us how much you were gonna give us on the front end. No one made you commit 100% of the profits. You could have given $10 and it would have been just fine. But you decided to sell your land and then you decided that you were gonna give away all of it. That was on you, dude. That's what he says in the, uh, in the second part of that verse right there. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have given whatever you wanted away, but it was you that decided that you were gonna prop yourself up as someone being radically generous. It was you that decided to tell everybody that you were gonna give away 100% of the profit, and it was you that decided to lie about that and to not follow through with it. Like, look, you could have gone and bought your vacation house on Crete. Like, you could have done whatever you wanted to with that 100K, but you decided to lie. You decided not only to lie, you decided to still present yourself as one who's giving away all of it when you weren't. Here's what Peter's saying that we have to understand as we dive in here. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not about the money. It's also not about the amount of money that they gave versus what they kept. Peter says that here. You didn't have to give any of it away. You didn't even have to sell your property. He says, while you own the property, was it not in your own possession? Like you were in charge of it. The problem here, Ananias, is when you were found out by Peter to have portrayed one thing about yourself, 
I'm so generous, I'm so sacrificial. But really the reality of yourself was different. And if you think about like members of the early church, like watching these storylines play out, end of chapter four, they see Barnabas come in with his bags full of silver and gold and he, draw, he says, I sold a piece of property and here's every dime that I choose to give to you. They, they watch that in chapter four. And then there's another group that watches Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira come in. Well, Barnabas just did this. And now look, Ananias and Sapphira, they're coming in and they're dropping bags of silver and gold. And the people watching would have been none the wiser. On first appearance, it would look like if you were a bystander or a witness, it would look like, man, Barnabas is doing this and now Ananias and Sapphira are doing the exact same thing. Man, aren't those people so great? Man, look at what Barnabas is doing. Look at what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're doing the same thing. They're dropping large sums of money at the apostles' feet to use for the poor and the needy. And so on first sight, you look at what is going on. You think, man, these people are great people. They're giving a huge chunk to the church to take care of the poor. But their sin, their issue, the evil, was their desire for prestige and glory, for being sacrificially generous without actually doing it. In order to gain a reputation to which they had no right to have, they lied about it. Their motive in giving their asset was not to actually relieve the poor, but to fatten their ego. I want you to think a certain way about us. That's what they were saying. So we're gonna prop up the reality that we're gonna give everything away and won't you think we're awesome for doing that? In reality, we're not doing it. In order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they lied. And Peter and the Lord and the early church will have none of it. <laughs> Look at what Peter says in verse five. He says, why have you contrived this deed, this evil deed in your heart he says that to him for our sake so that we and everyone watching will know that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira has nothing to do with the dollar amount. He's not talking about why have you kept that money and, and why have you not given X amount? He says to them, this is a heart issue, Ananias. We've got a heart issue. This sin started in your heart. And this is where, if, if you're leaning in here, this is where Christianity gets really really invasive, like to us. This couple just made a giant charitable donation to the poor. Do you know how much their 50K or whatever it was, large sum, because land ownership was hard to come by. Land was worth a lot of dollars. They just gave a giant donation to the poor. You know how many people that would have fed? You know how many people that that would have given healthcare too and medical care that could have built houses for the people in the church. Do you know what this would have done? You know what good this would have done in the world? And in any other organization on the planet, any other philosophy, any other gathering, any other club, these two people would have been celebrated. They would have dropped the check at the apostles' feet and people would have given them a round of applause and they would have gotten a plaque on the wall. They would have said, Ananias and Sapphira gave this huge chunk. Look at all the good that it did. Any other group of people would have celebrated them and lifted them up, but not in Christ's church. <laughs> That's terrifying. Because only in Christianity would you hear the words that not just is sin the heinous things that you and I do to break God's moral law. That is sin. Only in Christianity would you hear that sin is also doing great things for the wrong reason. <laughs> Only in Christianity does one hear that the Lord is concerned not only with the roots of your sin, the Lord is concerned with the roots of your obedience too. 
That's terrifying. Only in Christianity would there be a story in the early church about someone giving a giant check to charity and the poor and the needy and being struck dead for it. Like, do you realize, like, this is a good thing. They're doing a beautiful thing. They're giving money. Who cares what they said they were going to give and the difference between what they made and what they gave? Do you know how much good this is going to do? But only in Christianity does the Lord care way more about the heart. Only in Christianity do the motivations, the reasons why we do things matters. This is the book of 1 Samuel when David, the young shepherd boy, is being anointed to be the future king of Israel and his brothers are all lined up and they're all 6'4 and they you know, went to the army and it's like they are giants and everyone's going, one of these is gonna be the future king and then none of them are the guy according to Samuel the prophet and they get finally to David, the little scrawny shepherd boy and Samuel says, that's the king and they're all like, what are you talking about? It can't be David. And then Samuel says to them, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's like, oh, geez. Wait, wait, he's not just looking at what I do. He's looking at why I do it. He's not just looking at the acts of sin that I commit. He's looking at the acts of obedience I commit and asking why I did it. Why we do what we do is vital to the Lord. He cares deeply about why you do what you do. Do you know why? Because he cares about you. He cares about the heart And whether or not your heart is manifesting in acts of righteousness outwardly or acts of disobedience outwardly, he's coming after the why. Why did you do that though? Because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So why'd they do it? Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? What's going on in them that they would want to deceive people like this? Well, scripture helps us understand this through lots of other passages of scripture, but here's an easy way to try to answer that. Why do you and I do this? Why do you and I want people to think things about us that aren't entirely true about us? Why do we want a picture of us being painted that paints us in a really charitable light? What do we get from that? What do we get from people thinking things about us that aren't entirely true, but it makes us look a little better than we are? What's going on there? Why do I want you to think that I get up at 5 a.m. when really I get up at 5.30 Or six, see what I just did there? Why do I want, why do I want you, why do I want you to think those things about me? Why do I want you to think that I'm more capable than I am? Why do I want you to think that I'm more beautiful than I am? Why do I want you to think that I'm more adequate than I am? Why do I want you to think that I'm more sturdy than I actually am? Marilyn Robinson He's written several novels, wrote a book called Gilead uh, a little over a decade ago. And it's a novel about uh, this pastor of a small town church and that pastor is dying. And so the whole book is a letter to his young son for him to read after the daddy's died, but once the son is much older. And so he's this local hero. Everybody loves the local pastor. He knows everyone in the community. He walks the streets, walks the village. He talks to people. Everybody knows him and he's what a saint that he is and what a, what a glorious and good man that he is. Everybody's devastated that he's dying of, dying of cancer. Why is this so hard for people? Because this man's so great. And he's talking in the, in the letter to his son, he's talking about why people think that he's so great and what his reputation has become in the town. And he's giving these examples of why people think certain things about him and what kind of rumors in a glorious way have spread about him for the kind of man that he is. But listen to what the father says about what he does with what other people think about him. 
He says, often enough when someone saw the light burning in my study long into the night, so people are walking by the church, oh, they see the study light is still on. They see that his office light is still on. He must be studying so late into the night. Look at how, look at how committed and disciplined he is. Look at how much he cares about us. Oh, listen to what he says. Often enough when someone saw the light burning in my study long into the night, it only meant I had fallen asleep in my chair. And then he says this. My reputation is largely the creature of the kindly imaginings of my flock whom I chose not to disillusion. Meaning people think I'm so great. They see the study light on. They think, oh man, he's so committed. He's so disciplined. He so cares about us. And he's just falling asleep in his chair, but he doesn't make sure that they know the truth. I will let that rumor spread about me because I love what they think about me. And I will choose not to disillusion them to the reality of who I am. I just fell asleep because I'm friggin' tired and I don't actually care about you that much. I didn't actually stay up late studying those many nights. I couldn't stay awake while I was studying. I wasn't some great pastor. I was tired. <laughs> my reputation is largely the creature of the kindly imaginings of my flock whom I chose not to disillusion. So the reputation about him had become something entirely false, but I don't want to tell you that it's false. In other words, do you know what we get, or at least what we think we get, when people think things about us in a positive light that aren't entirely true? We get an identity. We get a reputation. We get praise. If enough people think this is true about me, if I can convince enough people to think this about me, maybe I can then hide behind what they think about me and I will live into what they think about me, but it's not actually me. Maybe it will secure my identity as such if enough people just think that's who I am. So I will work not on who I actually am. I will work on who you think I am and who I want you to think I am. Maybe it will secure my identity. Maybe if, I, if enough people think I'm smart, think I'm accomplished, think I'm emotionally intelligent, think I'm capable, think I'm gifted. Really what I want is I just want a bunch of people to think I'm awesome. And if enough people think I'm awesome, I will get a few drops of glory and man, that glory tastes real good. If I can convince enough people to think about me the way that I want them to think about me, I get a little glory. And here's where it gets scary. Our quest for glory, even drops of it, is so insatiable. We are so attuned to whether or not we're getting the glory that we think we want. We are very aware when we're not getting the glory that we think we want. <laughs> And so every conversation, every interaction, the wheels are turning up here to go, is this going the way, are they thinking about me the way that I want them? Is this, are, is the image that I'm trying to portray, is it, is, are they picking up on it? Is this the, and so every conversation and interaction becomes a threat and every conversation and interaction becomes fragile. Did it, did it go the way I wanted it to go? Did, did they leave here thinking about me the way that I want them to think about me? And the answer is no, they left there thinking about themselves. <laughs> they weren't thinking about you <laughs> as much as you were thinking about you. They're wondering the same things. They're not wondering about you. They're wondering about them. Does this ever happen to you, musicians and songwriters in co-writing rooms? I want them to think that I, I can write these kinds of songs and produce these kinds of songs. And so let me portray something and whoa, 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 this doesn't feel like it's going that way. And what if they leave this room and then it's not really going? What if they tell other people that I'm not really, that I can't really do it? What if there's no magic in this room? What if I never get another co-write? What if no one ever wants to use me on their record? What if, what if this doesn't? Or how about this? Does this sense 
of needing the reputation and not wanting the false reality to be out there. Does any, does it ever happen to you in a group of peers? Like Midtown Fellowship Church is one church in this city with multiple congregations and it's beautiful. But every week, the pastors from all the campuses gather together once a week for hours and we talk about our life and our heart and our marriage and our church and our sermon and we encourage and we're sharing things that what's going on over in East National and what's going on in Creve Hall and how's it all working? Do you know the amount of times that things are going in a room and people are talking and they're talking about wins that they're having and the way that they felt about their sermon and the way that their ministries are thriving and we're going, well, they, they don't think that about my church. But what about, people aren't saying that about my leadership. People aren't. But I, but I need this room to be thinking about me the way that I want them to be thinking about me. And so what is, in a group of peers, the comparison is like, pfft. or how about this? Does this sense ever happen to you in your family of origin? Like you get around your family of origin and you, and, and you begin to be viewed the way that you used to be viewed by them in high school or middle school. And you're going, you have no idea how hard I've worked to get healthy from this, to be free of this. Why are you still treating me like I'm the same person no, 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 you have no idea. I need you to view me differently now. <laughs> I need you to view me the way that I want you to view me. And you have no idea the amount of dollars I've spent on counseling. You have no idea the amount of conversations I've had about this interaction and you're not giving it to me. Or does this ever happen when your spouse doesn't think of you the way that other people think of you? Like everyone at work thinks I'm pretty great. What's wrong with you? Like, what is the deal that like, I, I, you're kind of portraying on me something that no one else seems to be portraying on me. Ever lash out at your spouse because they're not really feeling things about you that you wish everybody feels, but you've convinced everybody else might be true about you, but it doesn't work at home. There's a comedic portrayal of this, an old SNL skit with Will Ferrell. Remember this? Like, he, you know, I'm a, I'm a big deal at work. Like, I drive a Dodge Stratus. Like, people, people are scared of me at work, but like, it's not working at the dinner table. Like, it's not, why is this not happening this is what Peter is going after in the passage, that deepest place. Ananias and Sapphira, you have portrayed something to us about yourself that is not true. And now you're taking glory and praise and reputation about you that is hollow and false, and it has no place here. See, because in order to participate in this portrayal of self, this image of self, this reputation, this glory, this identity that we want everyone else to think about us, in order to participate in that and keep clawing for that, we have to participate with deception. We have to become master deceivers. And so I will get really skilled at deceiving you and saying to you what I need you to think about me. And then we become master deceivers of the Lord, thinking we're deceiving him. But I can't really do either of those things until I've spent a lot of time mastering the art of self-deception. I have to deceive myself for so long that this is who I really think I am now. And now when you're not doing that, I've so mastered deceiving myself, now I'm angry with you when you're not buying the deception. I think I'm actually who I think I am. So Lord and others, why don't you see me that way? Paul says this in Galatians 3. John says it in the book of 1 John. It's all over the New Testament, this reality. But Paul says this at the end of Galatians, Galatians 6. He says, if anyone thinks they're something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. 
Like when you think something about yourself, a righteousness, a production, an identity, an, a, a, an adequacy, when you think that about yourself and it ain't there, you deceive yourself. But man, we still love thinking that about us. I love thinking that I'm something. I'm something. But when you're nothing and you think you're something, you deceive yourselves. And Paul would say, it's all in the New Testament, self-deception lives in all of us. Hebrews chapter three says, be on guard, be careful at the increasing deceptiveness of sin. Like one of sin's greatest tools is to keep you deceived into thinking you're not committing it. That's how it works. And I know this is not rocket science, but deception by nature is deceptive. You and I won't always know when we're participating with it because we are deceived. We can't see it. Self-deception and others facing deception lives in the shadows. It lives in the vague. It never wants to be found out. It will not show up on your radar. You will not come home and think, man, I've been deceived all day. You think you're thinking clearly. You think you see yourself rightly. And when someone challenges that or doesn't see you that way, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not the deceived one. You're the one not seeing it right. None of us tend to think we're deceiving ourselves or the Lord or others. So here are three really brief telltale signs that you and I are participating with deception. Just, just be cognizant of some of these realities in your interactions. We defend ourselves, which means we get into a courtroom real fast. Argumentative language comes out real fast. And then we start having proof. Well, no, 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 no. That's, that's, not, that's not what I said. No, 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 you said. No, 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 here's my exhibit A. No, no, I remember clearly three weeks ago when you said that you would promise that you, and so the, the like now we're arguing and now we're lawyers and now we're, we can't even agree on anything because we have different sets of evidence because we are defending with our proofs what reality is. So we defend ourselves. The next thing we do is this when we're practicing the art of deception. We minimize things. It's not that bad. It's not that, it's not that big a deal. You're overreacting to this. Like no one else thinks this is a big deal. Why do you think it's such a big deal? So we have to minimize, we have to downplay, we have to basically uh, become master dismissers. We get really dismissive when we minimize. Like, well, okay, so you think that about me, but do you know what everyone else thinks about me? Your opinion does not really matter that much. Your criticism, your feedback is not really that important because I'm, I've so convinced myself that what you're complaining about is not really that big of a deal. I'm able to minimize and then just dismiss you for what you've said. And then lastly, we defend, we minimize, and then we rationalize. Ooh, this one hurts. The other two, not at all, but this one really. No, I'm kidding. This one hurts. How often do you justify your actions with your perceived pure motives? Well, I didn't mean to do that. That wasn't what I was trying to do. So we rationalize our actions by a commitment to our seemingly innocent motives. I had pure motives here. If the action came out wrong, I'm sorry, but you know, let me rationally explain to you what I was trying to do because my trying was pure, right? My attempts were pure. We rationalize, we try to make sense of indefensible actions. And so it doesn't, well, I'm sorry you're hurt by that, but if you just know what I was trying to do, let me, let me rationalize, let me explain to you how I started at point A, and then this happened, and this happened, and I'm at B, and then, and then we got to C, and then, but I wasn't actually intending on doing this, and yes, it ended up like this, but let me rationalize this away by showing you how you're crazy for being hurt by that, because I didn't ever mean to do that. 
We defend, we minimize, we rationalize. When those three things, any of those three things are in your world, the soil is fertile for deception. You've already deceived yourself. You've already participated with self-deception to some degree, maybe not to the nth degree like someone is telling you, but on some level, if you've got minimization, rationalization, or defensiveness, you have participated with self-deception and you are trying to deceive others. I will say this, I've rarely seen those things be present and righteousness just be flowing out of people. (laughs) Like if they're there, there probably isn't a whole lot of fruit of the spirit going on. This is probably a good indicator that deception and sin is present. Do you know what self-deception does to a person, to the self? And do you know what self-deception does to a community? Do you know what deception does to beauty in the world? Here's what it ends up creating. Nothing is real anymore. It's all deception. It's all shadows. It's all false selves. And so nothing's real. Nothing's trustworthy. Nothing lasts. Nothing is fully human because people are just deceptive versions of themselves. So self-deception creates hollow people, which creates hollow community. Nothing is real. Nothing lasts. And if you and I become even just slightly aware of the tendency that we have to do this, I'm not talking about becoming neurotic. I'm not talking about obsessing over it and sussing out every single thing that you've ever done. But if you and I start to become just slightly aware of our tendency to do this, you will see it everywhere (laughs) in you. Like Monday and Tuesday, I'm getting into the passage and I'm realizing, oh, this is what this passage is about. Dang it. (laughs) Now I'm gonna be thinking about it Wednesday through Sunday. Hopefully it stops today. But there's this like invitation to go, do you see how... It's like this weed, this infection is alive and well in you. I fall into this. Like, do you know this is why you send certain text messages to people? To try to control the image, get the glory, make sure they think a certain way about me. Do you know this is why you're anxious at night? What did people think about me the way that I needed? I kind of had that interaction earlier and I didn't really like the way that it went. And so I can't, and like your mind is a thousand miles from the present moment because you're wondering how the day has gone because you can't stop thinking about this. Did I get the glory that I needed? Was I, did they, did they, I was trying to kind of put this down, but then they didn't really respond the way that, and I don't really know how, It's why you buy the clothes you do. It's why you go to parties you do or don't go to. It's why you go on the trips you go on. You and I will see it everywhere. And in order for it to exist and like take shape and really take command of why we do what we do, it's like all that has to happen is this little idea would get incepted into our brains and hearts. Just the slightest little thought as you're leaving a meeting, as you're leaving an interaction. That person didn't really think about me the way that I wanted them to think about me. I don't really know that I portrayed myself the way that I kind of wish they would all see me. I got some work to do. (laughs) Or I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'm like having a meeting in real time and I'm sensing I'm losing it. Like the glory is is fading. They're not, they don't really, they're not thinking I'm as awesome as I want them to think I am. They're, I, what, uh, like it, uh. And just like the movie Inception, which is top five of all time for me, it's amazing. All you, need, all you need for this to take control of you is like the littlest idea. 
like four layers in, four dreams in. Like you just need a little incepted idea and it can control your life. Just one little thought, one, one little incepted idea. It grows and spreads and compels our very existence. And so there's a baby church and Peter sniffs it out. This infection is trying to finagle its way into the bloodstream of the baby church. And so the Lord must kill it off. Now I'm not saying he sent Ananias and Sapphira to hell. That is not in the passage, but he might've said, yeah, we got to go. Like this could destroy the whole thing. The Lord will not have a church that is born out of deception. The Lord will not have a church that is born out of people deceiving their way in and around their community, which would kill off honesty and beauty. The Lord will not have a church that allows for its people to claw and grasp for glory that's hollow. He won't do it. He will not allow it. But here's what kind of church the Lord will have. And here's what kind of church the Lord is trying to protect in this story. The Lord will have a church that doesn't have to claw and lie and deceive to get their own glory. Because in the gospel, the Lord has already given you glory. His. He's already secured for you your glory, which already secures for you your identity, which already secures for you your security. It already secures for you your justification so you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to claw and grasp for glory because he's already given you his. Philippians chapter two says that Jesus did not consider equality with God, glory, a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and gave himself away for the sake of his bride so that they could have glory. When Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer on the night he's gonna be betrayed and he's about to go be crucified, he's praying for the church and he says, Father, the glory that you have given me since before the foundation of the world, this infinite glory, this infinite identity as your son, this infinite security of who I am and my reputation, all of it, the glory that you've given me since the beginning of time, I now give to the church. I give it to them I want them to have it too. I want them to know how secure they are. I want them to have the glory that you've given me and I'll give my blood to secure it. The glory given to Jesus by the Father has been given to you by Jesus, meaning all the recognition you want, all the admiration you want, all the security you want, all the identity you want that you're not sure you'll ever get is already secured for you in Jesus. He secured it with his blood. The blood of Jesus is the great antibiotic for the infection of deceit. Because once you know you have the glory of Jesus, once you know his glory for you is secure, once you know your identity and your reputation, your belonging to him, once you know all that is secure, you won't have to deceive other people to get any more of it. I don't have to try to finagle. I don't have to try to scheme. I don't have to try to deceive and self-deceive. And I don't have to try to pretend. There's nothing left to prove if there's nothing more to gain. I've already gained it all by Jesus. So I don't have to try to go get more of it from you and what you think about me. And so guess what a community that knows it has a secure glory, a secure identity. Guess what members of that community start to do when they know just how secure they are? they start to get really honest. Honest people about who they really are. 
I don't have to pretend with you anymore. I don't have to have you think something about me. I don't have to have the kindly imaginations of my flock and not disillusion you. People who know they are this safe start to admit things they never thought they could. Because what if I admit it and then people think, then people will know what a fraud I am. People will know what a sham I am. I can't admit that because what would I lose? And the gospel says to you, you can't lose anything that matters. It's already secured for you. You already have his glory. You already have his identity. You already have his belonging. And so then I can quit deceiving you because there's nothing left to hide. And, 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 and it makes us not just honest repenters, it makes us repenters who never do one ounce of defending, minimizing, or rationalizing. We don't have to do any of those things anymore. I can just repent to you and say, I'm sorry I was wrong. That's all I need to say. And I don't have to correct, well, I'm, you know, I'm apologizing for this part of it, but not that part of it. And, I, and I'm, I need you to know that I still think I'm innocent over here, but I will own like this 5%. Like, no, I can just say, I'm sorry I was wrong. And I don't have to grasp for, but what does that mean they might think? What does that mean they might do with that? What is it? It doesn't matter. I have a secure glory. I have a secure identity. I can start owning to you and in front of you and to my community, I can start owning not just the evil I've done with my hands, but the heinous evil reasons I do good things too. I can start admitting that. I don't have to deceive that anymore. Like, can you imagine the interaction? If Ananias and Sapphira had come into Peter with their giant bags of money and said, Pete, we gotta talk. I know we said we were gonna give you 100% of it. I know we said we we're gonna give you 100K, but we got scared. And really why we were doing it in the first place is we wanted the glory from that. And we, ne- we now need to talk because I don't know what I'm supposed to give. Because I really want you guys to think about me like you guys thought about Barnabas. And that really seemed appealing to me. But man, I was doing this for all the wrong reasons. How much do you think I should give? Like, do you see what honesty and repentance and ownership and not having to pretend what that would do to a community? A church that knows its glory is secure is full of repenting people. Laying down our deceit at the feet of Jesus and finding his glory there. So let's pray and we'll repent honestly together as we close in song. Jesus, there's not one of us in here that doesn't do what Ananias and Sapphira did. We're trying to control the image. We're trying to secure the reputation. We're trying to have an identity that is not real. So Jesus, um, would you deal mercifully with us? Would you help us to be honest, to begin to admit as honestly as we know how what's going on at the bottom level and the glory that we crave, trying to protect something that doesn't need being protected, trying to secure something that doesn't need to be secured. Would you so liberate us by the blood and the glory of Jesus that we become an honest, humble, repenting people in this city, we pray in your name, amen.